Before we pick up in Isaiah tonight, um, one quick announcement. Uh, after service tonight, if any of you are available, willing, and able, uh, we have a bunch of furniture in the room right next door, which we need to move right here uh, to make way for, for some new flooring that's going in this week. Uh, so if you can help us with that, that'd be great. Tonight, we're going to pick up in Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24 through 27 is sometimes referred to as the little apocalypse. Uh, it is a short section in Isaiah uh, that, like the book of Revelation, looks forward all the way to the end. In fact, that phrase that we've been following throughout Isaiah, the one that leaps forward on the timeline in that day, occurs seven times in these four short chapters. Um, but it's also important to see why this little apocalypse of Isaiah exists and what it's for. As we've been um, going through Isaiah, we've seen a couple of major themes. Uh, one is that God is going to put the proud in their place. That's come up over and over again. We'll see it again tonight. And the second is the call to trust God and no one else. And so in chapters 18 through 23, basically Isaiah's message to his people was don't trust the other nations. And we just went through a roster of places through Damascus and through Moab, uh, through Assyria and through Egypt. And each one we saw was going to fall under the hand of God's judgment. Um, and so here we get the reverse of that coin, trust the Lord uh, and then to establish that, he looks all the way to the end. I remember seeing a Nicolas Cage movie a long time ago called Next, where Nicolas Cage could see, I believe, just, just a handful of minutes into the future. And he's got this line in the film where he basically says, the thing about knowing the future is knowing the future changes the future, right? Because you have the chance to react to it. And it's always struck me that, that he understood that only knowing the next few minutes, um, but we as Christians know the finish line of God's story. We know the end of all history, the consummation of all things. And so uh, in, in the words of the New Testament, how then should we live, right? And so um, <clears throat> what we have here, especially in chapter 24, mirrors what we read about in the New Testament. Let's read just a little bit in chapter 24, and I'll show you what I mean. Behold... The Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist the surface and scatter its inhabitants, and it shall be as with a people, so with the priests, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress. And so he envisions here uh, a tumultuous event on the whole earth, and then he basically says it's going to be the same for all people. No status, no class division will stand as it is to the priest, so with the people. As it is to the slave, so with his master. Uh, it continues here, as with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. And so he sees this cataclysmic event coming, and he roots 
uh, the truth of it, the reality of it, the guarantee of it in the fact that God has spoken. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, we see similar statements, the first made by Jesus in Matthew 24. Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says in verse 37, in fact, verse 36 for context, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only, for as it were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know on what day the Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour in which you do not expect and so Jesus makes a comparison here to the time that's coming, looking all the way back in Genesis to the flood. And as we pay attention, as we keep reading in Isaiah, you'll see that he does the same thing. Jesus foresees um, a, a climactic, tumultuous event. Peter does as well. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Now it's no surprise, but Peter also draws upon the imagery of the flood from the book of Genesis to make his point. Second Peter, chapter three, verse two. Peter says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God and that by these means the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, they're mirroring the language of Jesus, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And it would be a shame not to include his application here, verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what short sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God. 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But, according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, to tie together a few points here. There is a running commentary in the scriptures looking forward to this cataclysmic event, but what is it all about? Okay. I think the most helpful image that the Bible uses, and we find this both in the prophet of Isaiah in the second half, we'll get there in a few weeks, uh, as well as in the New Testament, um, is that the world is like a woman in labor. Okay. Uh, and uh, basically in the same way that giving birth is this climactic, and if you've ever been around it, absolutely terrifying happening. So also, it's like the earth is going to go through its own labor, and it's going to culminate, as Peter tells us, in a new heavens and a new earth. It's going to climax with joy and peace and the coming of the kingdom of God and all of the goodness uh, that comes with Jesus' return, but it also involves this crazy, um, cataclysmic, uh, earth-cleansing event beforehand. And so that's what Isaiah is talking about here. And the imagery he uses is strong. Look again at verse 1. He says, The Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. It's like God's going to grab the edges of the earth and wring it out like a towel. Okay. He continues here in verse 4. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Notice here that he roots uh, the reality of this coming, um, coming uh, happening, this cataclysm, as an act of judgment. What's really helpful there is what he says in verse 5. He says, the earth lies defiled or literally polluted under its inhabitants. Now, that's just not, an, not merely an environmental comment uh, that we impact the environment we live in and pollution uh, is wreaking havoc in the world. It's actually a comment on the fact that there is a correlation between sin and environment. There's a correlation uh, between our actions as human being and the earth itself. Remember all the way back uh, when we encounter the first murder in the Bible with Cain killing his brother Abel. God speaks and he says, Cain, don't you know that your brother's blood is crying out from the ground to me, right? The uh, Israel was told that, uh, that murder and injustice in their land would pollute the land and eventually the land would vomit them out. It's the same image that's used here. But the point that we need to be understanding here is uh, that this big cataclysmic event that is coming is consequence uh, because we, the inhabitants, have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. We live uh, as part of a people that stand in enmity to God. And so that leads to a curse. Remember, that's all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? There's a curse that comes with sin, okay? And so this is deep and dark stuff. It continues, verse 7, the wine mourns and the vine languages 
and all the languishes and all the merry-hearted sigh. That's abnormal, right? If you read the Bible thoroughly, you'll notice that when wine shows up, so does joy, so does pleasure, so does abundance. But here, the wine itself is mourning, and the vine is languishing, and the merry-hearted aren't merry-hearted at all. They're sighing, they're in mourning. The mirth, verse 8, of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. Nor more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. Now notice he transitions here to talking about a city, but the idea here is humanity as a whole, not any given city. This isn't Jerusalem or Babylon or Seattle or anywhere else. It's talking about humanity as a whole, but it's a city, a place for people, but it's abandoned. In fact, those who still live there, it says their houses are shut up so that none can enter. Either they've been condemned and left empty, or they've been barricaded for protection because things on the street are so bad. Verse 11, there's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. Gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. Okay. When you harvest an olive tree especially in the ancient world. Uh, now I think we do it with shaking. We have big shaking machines that shake olive trees. Uh, they used to do it by hitting the tree like you would a pinata. Um, but eventually what you have left is just a handful of olives in the tree. Same when you glean grapes. When you go through a vineyard, you pick all of the grapes. Uh, but eventually you have just a couple of grapes lying on the ground. That's the picture of this world that God designed to be inhabited, a place without form and void that he gave structure and gave even the command to humans to be fruitful and multiply, okay? What we're seeing effectively is the earth returning to as it was, where there was order, it's back to chaos, where there was life, teeming life, it's back to emptiness, uh, where there was structure, we find destruction. Verse 14 now, notice the shift here. In fact, let me go back a few verses so we get the, the um, rhythm here. Verse 12, desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten, as when gleaning when the grapes harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, God of Israel. Do you see how jarring that is? How out of place? In fact, oftentimes commentators are at a loss for how these verses fit in because as we'll see in a few verses, we're gonna move right back into the destruction and the judgment that's going on. Who are these people and why are they so happy? We see here that they're rejoicing in God himself. Notice they're giving glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, verse 16. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. Notice there that it's not some individual people, is it? It's not Jerusalem. This, this praise, this hymn that's happening is worldwide from the east and to the west, all the nations, it says, are singing uh, glory to the righteous one, okay? It seems here what Isaiah is doing is he's seeing beyond 
the cataclysm. He's seeing after these things. He's reminding us here in the text that this is not the end of the story, that God's goal is not destruction that leaves things in ruins, but purification. That as we saw in 1 Peter, it's bringing about a new heavens and a new earth, that it's coming to a place uh, of great glory, a place that reminds us that God is worthy of worship. If you read through the book of Revelation in its entirety, you will see the same thing, that there is many horrors and difficulties in the book of Revelation, but it culminates in um, the new heavens and the new earth and Christ ruling and reigning on the throne and the end of death itself and the wiping away of every tear, all of these things. And so Isaiah pulls back the curtain. He shows us where things are headed. And that's good news because the truth is we despair when we lose our jobs, right? We despair when our sports team doesn't make it to the Super Bowl. Uh, and so reading this passage, taking it for what it is, the promised word of God can be beyond discouraging. And so he gives us a glimpse, but then he also gives us an important truth. Notice what he says here. He says, verse 16, from the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one, but I say, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed with betrayal. The traitors have betrayed. And so he says, for me, there is no rejoicing. For me, there is no joy. For me, there is no pleasure. And this is for one of two reasons. Either it's because Isaiah is right in the midst. He's in the fire of these things. He knows what it's like to be scorned. He's sought to be faithful to God, and yet he experiences traitors and betrayal. He experiences a wasting away. Right? It's almost as if he's saying here, what good is that to me if I don't even survive? Right? And we'll see that's a clear tension of these chapters, which will be resolved the other possibility here, and this makes sense with Isaiah, we've seen it before, is that he's touched with compassion for the entire world that isn't going to endure a judgment like this. He's wasting away in sorrow for the world. He recognizes the traitors and betrayal, all of these things that are coming. Uh, it, they may be deserved, but they are still horrific, and it evokes his compassion. We saw that more than twice in 18 through 23, as he spoke of people that were constant and uh, continuous enemies against Israel, and yet he was moved for what was going to happen to them. He reflected Jesus, who as he rides into Jerusalem, knowing that by the end of the week he will hang on a cross uh, put there by the same people that he seeks to minister to, and yet he weeps, and he says, how I long to gather you like a hen does its chicks, and you were unwilling. He knows what's coming. We actually see the same thing in the book of Revelation. It's easy to miss. John sees all these visions, the low of the low of God's destruction of the earth and the high of the high of Jesus' coming. And we don't see him rubbing his hands together in anticipation for the death of the wicked. We don't see him excited uh, and obsessive about the apocalypse. Instead, we find a uh, compassionate realism when he says, even still, come Lord Jesus. And that's where Isaiah is. He knows and takes these things with great sobriety. He knows that joy is coming, but now he's in a time of mourning. 
Verse 17, terror and pit and snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. Now, we're reading this in English. It was written in Hebrew, and there's a, uh, a three-word alliteration there that we miss out on because we're reading it in English. It's poetic in nature. Maybe uh, panic and pit and pitfall would help us to get uh, the cadence of what he's saying here. But notice he lays out these three things and then watch what they mean. He says, terror and pit and the snare come upon you. Verse 18, he who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. Do you see how these three things work together? It's inescapable is what he's talking about. It's worldwide in its nature. Those who escape one will fall into another. And even if they make it out of that alive, they'll just end up in another place. Verse 18, for the windows of heaven are open and the foundations of the earth tremble. We saw that Jesus, as a reference point, used the flood in the book of Genesis. Here, Isaiah does the same thing. If you go back and you read the story of Genesis, where all the rain comes from is from the windows of heaven. It says, and the windows of heaven were open, and the foundations of the earth were split apart, and that's where all the water comes from. Isaiah evokes that same imagery here. Notice the state of things in verse 19. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, verse 21, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. Notice that this judgment is more than just judgment on humanity. It says that God will also judge the host of heaven. If you ever get the chance, I would encourage you to read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Uh, it's kind of like The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe. It's kind of like The Chronicles of Narnia, but written for adults. Okay? Uh, and in the Space Trilogy, he refers to Earth as the silent planet. Uh, and Ransom, the main character who my son is named after, ends up traveling to a few other planets in our solar system, Mars and Venus, respectively. Um, and there he encounters... Um, these beings that aren't just alien but angelic and they explain to him that the voice the angelic voice of the earth has gone silent okay that's why it's called out of the silent planet because there's been this spiritual war you know angels and demons there's been this rebellion on earth okay what he's envisioning here is the powers and principalities and spiritual forces of darkness that Paul tells us about in Ephesians. What he envisions here is what Daniel talks about when he says, Daniel, uh, Michael comes and he says, Daniel, I have a message for you. Excuse me, it's Gabriel, I'm pretty sure. I have a message for you, Daniel, but the p prince of Persia has resisted me and I've been fighting with him till now. Again, Isaiah pulls back the curtain. He recognizes a spiritual reality, and he says there's more going on here. It's not just human beings in rebellion, but the host of heaven in rebellion. And we see this again in the book of Revelation. Uh, we won't turn there now, but if you look at Revelation chapter 12, with the battle between the dragon and the child, and the dragon and all of it, he takes a third of the stars from heaven, and they fall with him. It's all talking about these same things. In fact, notice verse 22 they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. 
They will be shut up in prison. After many days, they will be punished. That idea of imprisonment of angelic beings is another one that runs through the New Testament. Okay, And so Isaiah is talking about these things. And then notice, it's not just... Uh, it's not just the earth, but it's cosmic in nature. Verse 23, the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. Okay. And so effectively, the cause of this is the revelation of the glory of God. It'll be the full frontal holiness of God that causes the earth to shake and the moon to retire and the sun to burn out, right? That's the idea here. And notice, notice uh, it says here that in the midst of this, on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, his glory will be before his elders. That's a little paradoxical, isn't it? The earth staggers and falls like a drunk and will not stand up, and yet Mount Zion stands. Jerusalem is still present. Okay, I would suggest to you uh, that what the Bible talks about that God is going to do at the end of all things is not just completely destroying the earth and then relocating people to a new place. It really is renewal. The new heavens and the new earth is not earth mark two like a separate model that God creates for the being. It's a renewed, it's a rebuilt earth, okay? And we can see, um, see that concept even here as Mount Zion and Jerusalem are points of reference here on this planet Earth. Um, but also, notice it says here that his glory will be before his elders. It brings us full circle again to the praise of the one who sits on the throne. In the midst of all this, the glory and the worship. If you look at Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, John the Apostle has a vision of a throne room, right? And he describes the whole thing to us. He lays it all out. Uh, in chapter 5, we see the lamb, uh, excuse me, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's actually the lamb who was slain, and he's in the throne room. Um, but both the one who sits on the throne and the lamb receive constant worship from these uh, uh, angelic guards that are in, uh, in the throne room, as well as from the 24 elders who are constantly falling down on their faces and throwing their crowns down and saying, worthy are you, Lord. Um, it's that same image that we get here. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, this is uh, serious. It's, it's severe. It is nothing short of apocalyptic um, but from this foundation from this vision he then begins to build on this let us in give us understanding as well as he begins to respond to it so notice how he responds in chapter 25 O Lord you are my God I will exalt you I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things now side note okay the idea of wonder here is not wonderful like we always use it. It's wonder as in wonders, okay? Uh, it's not that everything we've read about is pleasant. It's that it's divine, okay, in its origin. In fact, the word here, pele, the word used for wonderful is only used of God in the Old Testament. We can't do wonderful things. 
okay? You might be a wonderful per- person in modern English, but in Hebrew, Pele, you are not and have never done anything like that, okay? But what he's recognizing here is this clear and full demonstration of the mighty works of God. And notice that they're not just happenings, they're not just off-the-cuff things that God has done. He continues here, plans formed of old, faithful and sure, okay? And so this happening that we've been reading about, all the things that God have done throughout history are part of the plan. They're according to the plan that God is working out and orchestrating. And this is another thing that the New Testament makes clear. So again, let's look at Peter, this time in 1 Peter. Hey, Matt, could you do me a favor and turn off the heat? Look here with me at verse 18. Of all the wonderful works of God, nothing outranks the coming of Jesus Christ, notice what he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver as gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Notice verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, okay? So there's this foreknowledge of God, uh, this coming of Christ was part of the plan going back far. Uh, Look at Titus chapter 1. You want to turn to your left to find Titus. Notice what he says in verse 2. In hope of eternal life, with which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Okay? And so the preaching of the apostles here is according to the plan. It's the fulfillment of the plan that God laid out before time itself began, before there was a world to save. God had a salvation plan for the world. We see the same thing in the book of Revelation. Look at chapter 13, verse 8. says here, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. According to the plan, according to the foreordained plan of God, this is what Isaiah is exalting. This is what Isaiah is worshiping in. After Paul walks us through this plan in the book of Romans, 
and he gets to the hardest part of it in chapters 9, 10, and 11. By the time he gets to the end, he says, Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom of God, how unsearchable are his ways, how unknowable is his justice. He's overwhelmed. He is undone by the long-standing faithful strategy of God. Okay. And so this is what he's worshiping in verse 2. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Now, notice what he's saying. He's saying the thing that will, con- will finally convince the cruel, the tyrant, the strong nations will be their inevitable, inevitable surrender, right? If the only thing that impresses them is strength and power, God has it in spades, This is why it says in Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not every one of those confessions will be filled with joy. Many of them will be begrudging. Many of them will recognize uh, that, uh, that there is no opportunity, no possibility of standing against the living God. And so that's what he's picturing here. And then notice in contrast, verse four, for you have been a stronghold to the poor a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from a storm and a shade from the heat. We need to remember here that the cruel and tyrant that finally submit uh, to the hand of God, the reason God interferes, the reason he gets involved is to protect those in need of protection, right? And so their desire to take advantage is thwarted by God's power And so where for them it's a defeat, for the poor, for the weak, it's salvation. He says, God's been a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Notice how he talks about two songs here. There's the song of rejoicing for those who are saved, and there's the song of the ruthless, right? Which is a song of dominance. It's a song of self-praise and pride. It's a song of exaltation, and therefore putting your foot on the neck of those beneath you. And he says, but that song will be silenced. And then notice this in verse six. On this mountain, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Okay, And so he envisions here a feast that is coming, a celebration, a party uh, that is to happen. And notice verse 7, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering or the veil that is cast over all people the veil that spread over all the nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. We'll read this in just a second. But Paul says that Jesus is going to defeat all his enemies and the final one he defeats will be death itself. Okay. Delete the tyrants. Remove the wicked. 
ignore all those things, there's still a severe human problem, and that problem is death itself. It goes all the way back again to the beginning of Genesis, the consequence of our first parents, Adam and Eve's decision to rebel against God. Death is something that silences us, that separates us from God, that finishes our life and leaves us over, right? Ended. But he envisions a time here where there will be a feast and all will attend it because death will be defeated. And again, this is something that's repeated in the New Testament. In fact, this language here of being swallowed up, this language of the veil being removed, it's all language that the New Testament uses. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then jump with me down to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He says there's a problem for us as human beings. What God has for us is eternal. The kingdom of God itself is not a place for flesh and blood. Um, and he says here, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see here how he's drawing from the imagery of Isaiah? In fact, this gives us what Isaiah does not yet know. How is it that Jesus, excuse me, how, how is it that God is going to defeat death? He's going to become a man. He's going to live the life that we cannot live. He's going to bear the full penalty of our sin. He's going to be laid in a grave, and then he's going to be raised again as the first fruits of all those who would be raised after. How does God defeat death? By dying. There's a great old Puritan sermon. How's this for a sermon title? The death of death in the death of Christ. Right? That's what's being talked about here. Let's see it again in Revelation chapter 2. Look at verse 14. That can't be right. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Revelation 21, verse 4. I had my colon in the wrong place. Okay, so here John is given his last vision, the one of the new heaven and the new earth, which we've mentioned before. Notice verse 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. And there shall be 
no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In fact, again, that language is drawn here from Isaiah. It says in verse 8, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. I love this. Do you see the testimony? He says, In that day, what the faithful will say is, This is the one we put our trust in. He has delivered the goods. We were right to believe in him because he is faithful. He says, this is the Lord we've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now there's no getting around that word waited. In fact, it's a common one that's used for what we as the people of God must do on God. Uh, The Psalms say, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. Day after day, I waited upon the Lord. This idea, again, runs through the scriptures. And here, I think we get the heaviest weight, E-I-G-H-T, weight, in the waiting, right? Because it's the longest. This waiting here is to the climax of all things. Now, I don't know what you're currently going through. I don't know what you've currently faced. I don't know what tomorrow holds, But I do know what it's like to say, how long, O Lord? And compared to what suffering we may have endured, consider those in the book of Revelation who are martyred for their belief, put to death for following Jesus, and are resting under the throne of God in their constant prayer is, how much longer, God? How long until you bring about justice on the earth, until you set right what has gone wrong? But even those will say at this time when it's all said and done, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Verse 10, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place. Okay. Now it seems here that Moab is being selected in the same way that a city stood in for all humanity and civilization. Moab here stands for being one of the traditional enemies of the people of God. In fact, it happens to be one of the last ones that was referenced in that long list of nations. And so maybe that's why it shows up here. And so in contrast here, there's one people who who say, finally, God has been faithful. God has kept his promise. Our deliverance is here. And then Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. Okay, when when, um, the Jews would make fertilizer... This is how they do it. They'd trample straw into dung, and then they would use that straw and spread it around the field. That's how they would fertilize. And he says that that's what's going to happen to Moab. And then he gets pretty graphic here, verse 11. He will spread spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. Okay, It's, it's like Moab will be swimming in a cesspool. It's not an attractive picture here. Okay. Um, but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. Over and over, the Bible proclaims that God resists the proud and gives grace to those who are needy. And so here, Moab, it's not just that they're wicked, because 
the whole nation, all the nations, the whole world is wicked. The sin problem goes deep, but here they have continued to stand in opposition. They have continued to stand on their own two feet. And like we saw in Philippians, with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, um, they will stand no longer. And that's the point. And remember again, that these are the ones who were bringing about tyranny, bringing about warfare. These are the ones who were the tyrants. Verse 12, the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Now, there's no chronological reference points in these four chapters. We do know that he's talking way down the pipeline, but we don't know when these prophecies were given, when these visions were given. But what we've seen for most of the book is that this takes place when Assyria, under the general Shennacherib, has Jerusalem surrounded, and the king, Hezekiah, is bolstering up the city to prepare for the siege, right? And when we read it in that light, it becomes pretty poignant because he says, in that day, you're going to say what? We have a strong city. It's not Jerusalem. It's God himself, right? Their strength, their protection will be the Lord. Verse two, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Isaiah is full of these little nuggets that are worth memorizing, worth meditating on. Do you want peace? Keep your mind on the Lord and trust him. You keep him in perfect peace. And then he says in verse 4, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. The Bible refers to God as our rock regularly and consistently, especially in the Psalms. And I think the, the most helpful uh, place where this is dealt with in the Psalms uh, talks about God being our rock in the midst of a raging sea. Okay. Uh, imagine that you're in the middle of a storm and you come across this pinnacle rock, you know, and it's keeping you up from downing, drowning and it's holding you steady so that you don't drift out further into sea. That's the idea here. Again, it's tied to the humbling Verse 5, for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height of the lofty city. He lays low, lays it to the ground, casts it to the dust. Repeating the language from chapter 25, verse 12. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Which is a basically just a way of saying they're even lower than the low people, right? Okay. Verse 7, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Okay, so notice he upholds righteousness here, but he upholds it not just for righteousness' sake. The idea here of being righteous, of living a right life, is not just uh, because it's good versus bad, but because it's a road that leads somewhere. And where does it lead? It says, it says your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Righteousness we pursue because we want God at the end of the road, okay? Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall 
see God. Okay? The idea here is not just that these people want to be right, uh, but that they want to truly know the righteous one. They want to be in fellowship with God. Verse 9, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Okay. Now, again, the tension here is the tension between wanting Jesus to return, wanting God to be present and working, and realizing what that means. And so he says here, when your judgments come on the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Okay? In fact, notice what he says in verse 10. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. He says when things are easy and comfortable and good and the world continues as it is, and the tramplers continue to trample because it, it pays to trample, he says they won't learn. They won't come to the place. There's no potential for repentance. I mean, be honest. How many of us, the reason we finally became Christians was because things were just that bad? C.S. Lewis calls it God's divine humility. Because we come to him when all of our other ships have burned. We come to him when we have no other options. And God could easily say, you know what, I was worth worshiping when you had everything, I was still more than what you have. But even at our lowest point, when we have no other alternatives, when we say, God, you are my last choice and my only hope, he still receives us. That's God's divine humility. Judgment, pain, difficulty, these are God's peculiar tools. And Isaiah recognizes here that when he uses them, it brings people back to him. He says, uh, if favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly, and the Lord does not see the majesty, and he does not see the majesty of the Lord. In other words, when we have lots of glitter and glam in our life, when we, you know, are living in houses full of electric light, we can forget the brightness of the sun. But you lose power in the middle of the night. You develop the fear of the darkness and the sun comes up in the morning, you see it for what it really is, right? That's the idea here. Verse 11, O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. Okay? Remember, Isaiah is a Jew. He's an Israelite. They know what it's like to be under the thumb over and over again. They know what it's like to serve Pharaoh to serve Nebuchadnezzar, to serve Shennacherib. They know what it's like to be under the thumb. And he says, but in the midst of all of our lords, only your name do we focus on. Only your name do we remember. You've continued to be our God, verse 14. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction. In other words, they say, we've lived under the thumb of all these tyrants, but where are they today? Every one of them has gone to the grave. Every one of them is over, and yet Israel is still here. 
One of the hardest truths to swallow as a Christian is that God doesn't provide or promise us deliverance but endurance. He doesn't say that he'll keep us from trials, tribulation, persecution, difficulty. He says he'll keep us through those things. And Israel is a living testimony of that, still standing when all of their oppressors are gone. Verse 15, but you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Okay. Now Isaiah brings another layer in here. Not only have all these tyrants been doing wickedly, but they've also been doing in a significant way the will of God. God has brought these enemies in over Israel because of Israel's rebellion. And this goes all the way back to what God said he would do in the book of Deuteronomy. And so he sees it here not as punishment upon Israel, but as discipline. Okay, and we've talked about this before. The difference between the two is discipline is a tool utilized to bring about righteousness. Punishment is just your, your deserts for what you deserve. Okay. When you do the crime, you do the time. That's punishment. But when we discipline a child, that's to instruct them. And so he recognizes that these things they've gone through are the discipline of the Lord. Um, it's not to destroy Israel, but to purify them, right? Verse 17, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to the wind. And so he says, okay, so if this whole thing is God's discipline, if it's about to bring about goodness, if we were like a pregnant woman and the last few hours of pregnancy are so painful and so tumultuous, and he says, yet we've come out the other side and it was like there was no baby to be had. We've given birth to the wind. He's saying, what's it going to take to accomplish your will, to finish your plan, to make us a righteous people? Look at as he continues here. He says, we have accomplished no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Things continue as it is. The plan still isn't finished. In other, in other words, again, what was the tension earlier? What good is your final and total salvation if I'm not alive to see it, O Lord? Notice what it says in verse 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. Okay. Now, let me be clear here. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, which we turned to earlier in the night, Paul makes clear that if the resurrection, the idea of the dead coming back to life, is not real, then Christianity is worthless. Because if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then you are still in your sins. Of all men to be most pitied, the apostles have preached deception, and you're, you're dead in the water. Okay. But more than that, the resurrection isn't just important because it's the foundation of our faith and what God has done through Jesus Christ. It's also important because it solves the final problem of justice. Okay. Both for those who, um, who, both for the innocent whose lives are taken and for the unjust who literally get away with murder. Okay. If there isn't a final judgment, 
If God won't raise the dead, then there is no fairness. There is no justice in the world that we live in. Then we might as well eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Then all morality loses its significance because it's just a blip on the radar of history that will be forgotten and not remembered and means nothing. Right? Like the words of Shakespeare, the world is, uh, you know, like the ramblings of a drunk man full of wrath and fury, signifying nothing. And so it's almost like he looks at what they're going through. He sees it and he goes, it's not finished. Okay, here's the discipline, but where's the reward? Here's the death, but where's the living? And Isaiah speaks and he says, the dead will rise. He says, you who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of life and the earth will give birth to the dead. Now remember, that's good for the slaughtered. It's not so good for the murderer. Okay? Because they will stand before God in the flesh. Verse 20, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself for a little while until the fury has passed. You see how that changes his tone? Earlier he is like, how will we endure? And now he says, it's only a little longer. Why? Because he has eternal perspective. Because he sees the finality and the fullness of what is to come. It's similar to when Paul says, I have determined, brothers and sisters, that the present sufferings of this life aren't even able to be compared to the inestimable weight of glory that is to come. When weighed in the scales of eternity, it's just a little while. It's just a little longer. It says, verse 21, For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. Remember I told you this is not so much good news for those who got away with murder? It's because now there will be witnesses who say, yes, I know he murdered him because I'm him, right? I know he's the murderer because I watched him kill me. He says here there will be no secrets hidden at this point. All will be made known. Think of how many times in human history, even in the history of the Bible, the accuser has been silenced to cover up a crime. David gets Bathsheba pregnant. needs to cover his tracks. So he tries to get Uriah, her husband, to sleep with Bathsheba close enough in the schedule so that nobody will know and it doesn't work. And so he plots his death. How many times in modern history have witnesses all prepared to speak at the courts been suddenly struck down in their beds? Right? But there will be no hiding in that day. Chapter 27, in that day, Again, that phrase, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Almost every religious community around Israel, Babylon uh, and the Canaanites, um, and, and the people of Ur, where Abraham comes from, they all have a myth. 
all of them have a myth about one of the gods in their pantheon defeating a giant dragon. Okay. Isaiah tacks on to that language here. And he says, all your mythology is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He says, the chaos that everybody innately understands what's wrong with the world, this havoc and death and destruction, it will be slain. And so he grabs this image. It's not the only time he'll do this. He'll also grab another one later on from the mythological world. But he's just making a cultural touch point. Okay. Um, that's what's going to happen, though. Death itself, the curse, sin itself, all those things will be put down and destroyed. Verse 2, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, I the Lord am its keeper. Does this sound familiar? If you've studied with us, you know in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah uses this picture of a vineyard and God is a keeper to talk about what's gone wrong in Israel. And he says, I planted a vineyard. I laid it out perfectly. I built a tower to protect it. I fertilized the ground and tended it with care. And what has it given me but sour grapes, right? But at the end here, with Leviathan slain, with the big issue, which is not an external one, but an internal one dealt with, we count, encounter another vineyard. But notice this one is different. He says, I, the Lord, am its keeper every moment. I water it lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let, <laughs> let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. Two things here. First, this vineyard has no thorns. Okay. Remember, that's a product of the curse. The garden in the beginning is a perfect garden that needs to be cultivated but not toiled over, that is full of roses but not thorns, that is fruitful but has no curse. And here, Israel is that way again. And then second, the language here is God saying, I wish there was still something left to do. If there were thorns, I would destroy them, right? If there were still enemies to Israel, I would put them down, but it's all finished. And then notice here, I think this is so significant. He says, I'll burn the thorns. And he says, but, or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. God is not set on the judgment of the wicked. He's open to reconciliation. He's open to peace. As it says in the New Testament, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In fact, the way, place that we find that is where we were reading in 2 Peter. When he says, this judgment is coming, it's inevitable. Why has it taken so long? And he says, don't forget, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. And then he says that, for the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is tremendously patient. And even here in a hypothetical, where there are no thorns, he says, even if those thorns would repent, I'd receive them. Verse 6, in days to come, Jacob shall take root. Still vineyard imagery here. Israel, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Okay, hard language. Follow the grammar with me. Has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck Israel? Okay. 
Okay? Has he struck Israel as he, as he did Assyria, as he did Babylon? He's making a contrast here. What did he call God's judgment on Israel? Discipline. But it's not the same for Assyria and Babylon. That's punishment. Okay? And the difference isn't because these are my people Israel and these are not my people Assyria. The difference is because Israel humbled themselves. And Assyria refuses to do so. But nonetheless, there's a contrast here. And he says, has he done to Israel as he'll do to Israel's enemies? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. He says God was right. And the judgment was heavy that took Israel out of the land. But notice verse 9, therefore by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. What's the difference? Sin is sin, committed by Israel or Assyria. How does this break down? How can God justly punish Assyria and justly forgive Israel? That requires atonement. We've seen this tension in the book already. This question that's just underlying of, okay, somehow God is going to make Israel righteous, but how? And we don't get the answer until Isaiah 40, and especially as it moves into Isaiah 53, what's going to happen is there will be atonement, and that atonement will not be made by Israel but by the servant of the Lord, by Jesus himself. Okay. Verse 9, Therefore this guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. Notice this. The atonement is not the destruction of false worship. The fruit of that atonement is the destruction of false worship. They will give up their idolatry because they have been forgiven. Okay? And that's one of the things the New Testament says about what happens in Jesus Christ. God doesn't just give us a clean slate. He doesn't just take us back to the starting line and say, why don't you try again? He gives us his own nature in the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just call us righteous, but he makes us righteous. He gives us new de desires. He works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. Right? Paul says, let us be careful to work out our own salvation because God is working in us. That salvation, right? And so that's envisioned here. The fruit of what God's going to do in bringing atonement will bring about true faithfulness and they will really be the people of God. Verse 10, for the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips the branches. When the boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them, for this is a people without discernment. Therefore he, made them, uh, therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. And so again here, we see those who maintain resistance, who don't humble themselves, who don't identify themselves as in the wrong and cry out for mercy. He says that they're just going to be destroyed. There will be nothing left. And then notice verse 12. In that day... From the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, 
and you will be gleaned one by one, O people Israel. Okay, now sometimes threshing is a metaphor of negative judgment, okay? Jesus talks about this coming harvest, right? And he uses it in two sentences. The wheat will be harvested and brought into the barns. The tares will be cast into the fires, okay? When Isaiah is talking here, the gleaning he's talking about is that good side. It's that positive side. Now, when he mentions from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, uh, if you look back at Genesis 15, that is the ideal boundaries of the nation of Israel, okay? Not the ones that they actually lived out, but the ones that were promised that they never fully experienced. All the way from the Euphrates, the border of Babylon itself, down to Egypt, okay? Um, in verse 13, in that day a great trumpet will be blown, and all those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So the last thing he sees here is uh, at the sound of a trumpet, God gathering together like he's harvesting all of Israel and bringing them back to the land. Now, a couple of things here. First, notice Assyria is the place that they're coming from, okay? Just like Moab, this is a placeholder for a broader uh, reality. And if you keep reading through the prophets, you'll see God's not just gonna call the people back from Assyria, but from the ends of the earth, okay? But this one is contemporary value to Isaiah's audience because he's speaking to Judah and Israel. The northern tribes has already been taken away from Assyria. So they have you know, relatives living in Assyria. It's tangible, this promise here. Um, the second thing I want you to notice here uh, is it says that they will come back and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Okay? Israel will be reassembled. Now, although I think there's a spiritual significance to this for all of us, not being Jewish, being from the other nations, there is a literal implication here for the people of Abraham. Okay? And again, as we continue through the prophets, we'll see that this is evident. That's the big question that Paul asks in Romans 9 to 11. Is God done with Israel? And he says, absolutely not. Okay? So there's a whole bunch of pieces we'd have to put on the table now to make sense of this, but I just wanna lay that down and I want to remind you again of how miraculous it is that the nation of Israel exists today, okay? I just got back from touring Israel and all of Israel's history as we reviewed it since, uh, well, since 1910, okay? Since the British mandate of 1917, all of it is full of head-scratching miracles that don't make any sense. There is not another people group on earth that has survived 2,000 years without a homeland and still maintained their nationality. And this is something we'll encounter again and again in what the prophets have promised, that there is going to be a restoration of Israel. However, here they will come and they will worship God. That we have yet to see. Zechariah promises that there will be a day when all of Israel is surrounded by the nations again, they finally figure out a way to bring peace in the Middle East to destroy the Jews. And that's the day that Jesus is going to return and he's going to defend his people. And Zechariah says, on that day, all Israel will be saved because they will look on him who they've pierced and they will mourn as one does for an only child. They'll get it. They'll go, oh, Jesus really is the Messiah. Okay. At that point, all of Israel will become worshipers of the living God. That 
is the final gleaning that's talked about here, okay? And so we see this in three levels. Contemporary for Assyria, to come in the restoration of the nation, and finally fulfilled in the salvation of the nation, okay? More of this to come in Isaiah, but this is one of the first glimpses we get of it. Let's close there and pray. Father, the message that Isaiah has for his people, the one that you have for us tonight, is that you are faithful and true and that your plans will be accomplished and that your compassion goes deeper than what we deserved in, in the fact that you are promising atonement and forgiveness for those who are your enemies. And even those who will be resistant till the last day, even then it's not too late for them to bow the knee, to surrender, to receive mercy. But the whole plan has been in place since the beginning of time. It is your word, it shall be accomplished. And what that means for us today, whatever we're going through, whatever we're experiencing, we can look all the way down the lane to the finish line. And we can rejoice now. And we can trust now. And we can have peace now, God. I pray that you would hold us in perfect peace who keep our eyes on you, who trust in you. Father, we live between two victories, the one already completed for us fully and totally in Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant everything necessary for our salvation. And on the other hand, the consummation of that salvation, the finish line, when it will all be completed and there will be no more tears and no more difficulty and no more death and no more pain and no more curse, it will all be over. We leave somewhere, live somewhere in the middle, but I pray that where we are in the middle would be defined by those two points. That we would string our lives between those two points, the victory of Jesus Christ that was and the one that is to come. And I pray, Lord, that it would change the math on our current circumstances. And it would change the math on our current decisions. Like Peter said, if all these th things on the earth are going to be dissolved with a fervent heat, how then should we live in holiness and in righteousness? But ultimately, Lord, we know that on that day, just as Isaiah promised, we will worship and say, this is the God that we trusted in faithful and true with our words he with are his words he is our salvation and we proclaim that preemptively tonight lord we pray in jesus name amen amen have a good night again if you have time uh, and ability if you want to just help us move the furniture from next door right in here that'd be great